Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Dr. Alicia Porter, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and the clinical head of the Child and Family Unit at Charlotte McKeke Academic Hospital. She is a joint appointee and lectures in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of the Witwatersrand. The 10th of October marks World Mental Health Day, and this year's theme is Mental Health is a Universal Human Right, aiming to improve knowledge, raise awareness, and drive actions that promote and protect everyone's mental health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Porter. It's lovely to be here, and thanks for the invitation. To begin with, can you tell us about your discipline of psychiatry, which centers on on child and adolescent mental health. You also have interest in women's mental health, mental health in the workplace. Can you share some of the types of conditions that you treat? So maybe let's start with the field of of psychiatry, because we often get asked, what is the difference between psychiatry and psychology? So psychiatry really is a discipline of medicine, Um, It's actually a speciality in the field of of medicine. So after your basic six-year degree, you'd have to qualify as a medical doctor, and then you have to do a further four-year registrar training in the discipline of psychiatry. And as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I then had to do a further two years of training within the discipline of um, psychiatry. And so as psychiatrists, we deal with mental illness um, and also we are able to then prescribe medication, which is then different to psychology. It's more in the humanities and it's talking therapy, no prescribing. That's the essential difference. Um, Obviously, as a discipline in psychiatry, we see the more complex cases, but not forgetting that common things occur commonly. And so, you know, we see an array of mental health concerns, anxiety, depression, substance use, post-traumatic stress, and then the more serious mental illnesses like your bipolar mood disorder, your schizophrenia, which make up a much smaller percentage of prevalence um, in terms of mental health conditions. Um, And yes, and so there's also the interface between psychiatry and medicine, because really what our study is, is we study the brain, but not the mechanics of the brain. It's the other parts of the brain that is our area of, of special interest. Every human is variable, whether it's driven through from emotions, feelings, uh, imbalances from a chemical perspective. I mean, I, I kind of always think about it that, you know, as humans, it doesn't matter what kind of, you know, religious aspect we prescribe to, we are body, soul and, and spirit. Um, and so I think in psychiatry, ours is really the focus on the soul, which is really your mind, your will, the emotions. And 
a lot of the time, mental health conditions can manifest in your body. And, you know, I love the saying where a lot of the time the thought that, you know, mental health conditions are in your head, you know, and my response is because where else should it be if not in your head and the way we then conceptualize it. But I mean, it's still a highly stigmatized field. And I must say that I have for the longest time thought that we are the stepchildren of medicine. You know, you'll have people who would study with you for your basic undergraduate degree. And when you get into the workplace, there's the sense that you're not a real doctor because you're dealing with the airy fairy things with regards to, to medicine. But I mean, I often will say, like, I sat next to you at med school, like I am actually a real doctor. The brain is in a, it's a fascinating organ. And I mean, the advantage of my job is that we see different things every day. But don't you think that part of the challenge is that if someone has an ailment or a condition in their body, that people can see it. I broke my arm. You can see it. I've got a, a, a an outbreak. You can see it. Whereas mental conditions, you cannot see them. And do you think that that's also part of this dynamic where things are not taken as seriously as they should be because people can't see it? Definitely so. But, you know, I would say, is it that we really can't see it? Because maybe we can't see it in an X-ray, but the manifestation of it is there, you know, like the child who's acting out, for example, um, because they have such severe anxiety. If we sort of took the time and actually began to understand what was happening, you know, we wouldn't then see that kid as a naughty kid, but we would then see the anxiety and then we're able to then treat it. So, kind of think we need to put on different eyes because it is there, you know, even when people have physical symptoms like tummy aches, for example, but we don't find anything on the gastroscope, but they are highly anxious. That's a manifestation. And so I think it's about looking to see with different eyes. Hmm. How did you get into the field? What were your your triggers? Because as you mentioned, six years doing your medical qualification, four years in specialization, followed up by another two years delving into child and adolescence as additional specialization. So what, what honed your interest in this direction? So, I mean, I must say I've always been fascinated, even as a kid, with human behavior and when I finished school, I got good enough marks and my dad thought that I would be wasting my matric results if I applied for a humanities degree because I had known for the longest time that I wanted to be a lawyer and a good friend of mine and I, we still joke about like I sold out to the law profession. Um, so I then did medicine because I thought, okay, I probably will get into humanities. Let me see. I will get into, you know, to see if I could get into medicine because I didn't, you know, according to my dad, he's like, you know, you don't want to waste this opportunity. Um, so much so that I actually didn't do biology at school. So where was I going to doing medicine? I don't know, but I got in. And obviously once you're in, you can't really turn around. 
but I knew that if I'm going to do medicine, then I will do psychiatry. Um, so when I started my medical degree, I knew that I was going to do psychiatry because that was the only aspect of medicine that had any interest um, for me. And then the child psychiatry bit came serendipitously <laughs> um, where I've worked with children not in a medical setting for more than 20 years within the community where I lived. And I realized at some point where, you know, I'd see kids and I was seeing them as a volunteer working with these kids, but I was kind of going between my psychiatry and, you know, just being with them. And so I thought, you know, I, I should actually go and sort of make this a speciality because I've always had an interest in children and adolescents because I feel like prevention is better than cure. And so I went into private practice for about six or seven years. And thereafter, I realized actually that I needed to go. It was not for me at that point and I needed a change. And so we made a change. You know, most people do it the other way around, but I felt like I needed to go back and kind of do something to make a, a difference. It's always been about making a difference for me. If I'm going to do something, it should be to make a difference. When I came back into state employee, I worked in forensics because my passion was law. And I thought, okay, how can I marry the two? So I went and I worked in forensic psychiatry for a year. And after a year, we used to have a Friday ward round once a week. And we would sit and I would listen to story after story after story after story of, you know, these observation cases where they've already committed a crime. And I listened to their histories. Like after a year, I said to a colleague, actually, I think it's too late now. I really can't do this like for, for much longer. I think I need to go back to the beginning. Because um, I always knew I wanted to do child psychiatry, but I just felt it was too hard, the timing. And so I just kind of at that point said, well, I'm going to go back. Let me give this thing a chance. So I then started the journey in child psychiatry. And now being a child psychiatrist, I realized it's still too late. We need to go back to the womb. <laughs> How far back is it? A parental issue? Is it mums and the way that they bring up their kids? I mean, I think it starts in the womb. Like, I think we should go back to um, pregnancy. And I think that, you know, the obs and gynees would need to take care of the physical health of women during pregnancy. But I do think that it should be a multidisciplinary approach where we actually, beyond whether you have, you know, high blood pressure or you have diabetes during pregnancy or some physical complication, I think there should be a real focus on the mental health, you know, conditions because the quality of the womb that a child is, you know, in for nine months definitely sets up the trajectory for the rest of their lives. And so... The physical issues, yes, but, you know, what about, you know, the mental health stuff? What about the stress? And, I mean, now we know with the field of epigenetics that you can get a change in the way the DNA expresses itself with things like maternal stress. Um, and so when we see a kid in our unit 
you know, the initial assessment, we go all the way back to the womb and then we go three generations in terms of family to try to understand this kid who's now in front of me with the challenges that they that they have. And so for me, the first 1,000 days of a child's life, that's the nine months in utero in the first two years, I think those are the most important years in anybody's life because it definitely sets the trajectory for the rest of your life. It's an amazing perspective, fascinating, one that I haven't heard before, um, but so, so interesting in your work and just having this as this holistic approach, uh, multidisciplinary, you're also talking multi-generational in terms of uh, accounting for history and how to progress and go forwards with with the children or, or patients that are in your care. Um, staying for a moment with mental health, one of the things that struck me was with the statistics from the World Health Organization indicating that one in every eight people, so that's 970 million people around the world, are living with uh, a mental disorder. And like you said, depression and anxiety are, are often some of the, the key components. The good thing, I would say, is that mental health potentially is gaining um more awareness, so possibly becoming less stigmatized. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group is at the forefront currently from a South African point of view on patient advocacy, education, and also addressing those misconceptions of mental uh, illness. I understand that you volunteer for the organization as a mental health advocate, and you also do fundraising. Can you tell us more about the work that you do with them? So again, it's it's quite a that's quite a joke because I always say to them that I am a volunteer, but I didn't do the training. Um, but just by the fact that I am a mental health advocate, I think even before I'm a medical doctor. So I do a lot of kind of when they need something to be done, then I will volunteer to do it. And so I'm a volunteer on that basis. So I'm kind of an unofficial um, volunteer for them, but it really gives the opportunity because they have such amazing work that they do in terms of particularly addressing stigma around mental health. Um, And that's the biggest issue. And it's not just sort of stigma from the outside. It's also self-stigma that is, you know, is quite an issue. And so how I got more involved with them is that during COVID, a group of psychologists and psychiatrists in Johannesburg, when all those memes were flying around that says, like, stay home if you don't want, you know, a psychiatrist to intubate you and all the rest of that. So we kind of got together and thought, what can we do? I mean, we won't be able to intubate because we're completely out of practice. Um, But what can we do? And we started looking at literature that showed, you know, that, the healthcare workers were really struggling during COVID. Um, Like that was what was coming out from the rest of the world. So we thought, okay, let us look at a model to support our healthcare workers who already burnt out. And so we started off on a Zoom call. I like to say on a silly Saturday afternoon with 14 of us. We didn't all know each other, but it was one of those, each one bring one. So from there, what was called... COVID care for Gauteng was born. 
Um, but it gained such momentum and it was different from the usual EAPs in companies because we looked at a training arm and we looked at a crisis intervention arm. And so as a result of that, um, the South African anxiety, you know, SADC came alongside us and a few months later, the Healthcare Workers Care Network was then founded, which became a national initiative. Um, and so that is how I then got involved more fully with SADC. And from there, I've then done a lot of work for them, um, particularly with the Healthcare Workers Care Network aspect of it. Um, and in terms of raising sort of awareness and funds, I've learned very early on that if you kind of put yourself on the line or you do something crazy, um, people will give you money. <laughs> what has been the craziest thing you've done? I mean, we we climbed Kili Manjaro in 2019, but in 2013, well, this was for a different organization though, it was for human trafficking, we did Everest-based camp, and then September 2021, we decided to do this Tanqua Camino, which is like nearly 300 Ks from the Northern Cape down to Cirrus um, on foot, um, and that was coinciding with suicide awareness, and so we thought, why not raise some money for, for SADC at the time? And as we speak, there's another adventure loading April 2024 um, but I just realized that people will give one if you ask on behalf of somebody else and two if you're willing to put your body on the line for whatever cause. Um, Some of those are are pretty intensive and literally life risking. Yeah and I mean I'm not really I was never really the outdoorsy type so it was really like a serious challenge for myself but I mean, if I'm going to be challenging people to give, I should also challenge myself to do something. Well, well done. And I wish you every goodwill that comes um, forward when you do your next crazy venture for, for fundraising. I wanted to ask you from a, a SADC point of view, are there any resources that are, are freely accessible to, to people who, whether it is um, people who feel that they are experiencing a form of mental illness or perhaps it's a family member or support that they're looking for content? So, I mean, the SEDEC as an organization, they've got a whole website, you know, their website is full of resources. So they've got tabs for pretty much education on most mental health conditions. So that would be a place to, to start. So www.sadac.com. Org, and you'll get quite a lot of resources from there. Then there's also the various helplines that SADC has where you could get in touch with a counselor who'd able, you know, if there's a crisis or even if you wanted further direction or further help, there is, and the helplines are 24, it's a 24 hour service. Um, they've also then added a medical student's helpline to, you know, so they've got general helplines and then there are also specific helplines, like the Healthcare Workers Care Network has its own specific um, helpline as well. So 
SEDEC as a resource is a really valuable um, resource. It sounds incredibly accessible. With us being a gender-based show, and uh, you were talking earlier about looking at the most important dynamics and aspects of a child's lifetime, being in the womb, and then uh, as they gestation and then being born. From a woman's point of view, could you please share what you would recommend as your top three mental health tips to help women? So, I mean, I think... For me, it's the idea that, particularly as women, I do think that we need to begin to prioritize taking care of ourselves. But I'm not talking about the spa day, book a trip with the girlfriends kind of self-care. I'm talking about just making self-care a lifestyle. So I think for too long as women, we don't listen to our bodies. Um, And then we kind of wear this busyness almost like this crown, you know, or this trophy. So, you know, I'd hear women say, you know, I was so busy today that I didn't even have a chance to eat lunch. I was so busy today, I didn't even have a chance to go to the toilet. I mean, that's not things that we should be glorying in um, because that says, one, we're not listening to our bodies. um, And two, we are on autopilot and we're just going through the motions, you know, so self-care for me is a big thing and it's been quite a journey and it's actually quite difficult um, because of all the narratives, you know, that we've grown up with and all of the things that, you know, even the myths just surrounding self-care, you know, this idea that it's selfish and all of those things, you know. And then I think the second thing for me would be about kind of knowing who you are. Um, And that also is quite a street fight because, again, I think we kind of forget that we come with these narratives, like the way we grew up. um, It's my husband that loves to say your childhood is that part of your life that you spend the rest of your life trying to get over. Um, And so we kind of come with, all of these things. And so they're not necessarily traumatic things or big things, but like just growing up in a house with family and siblings is is traumatic, if you think about it. It's, you know, in terms of the things, you know, the kind of narratives, the kind of movie reels that that play, you know. And I think it's as women, if we begin to become aware of these things, because they do impact us. Um, even if it's not consciously, a lot of these things impact us. So how can I increase in self-awareness and how can I, because who am I, I'm going to have to increase in self-awareness to know who I am. And I think lastly, for me, it's about, I don't think we realize that we have a superpower in terms of being able to connect. Um, And there's such great power in connection and community. And I think that oftentimes we are our our own worst enemies, where if we were to come together as a collective and connected and we supported each other, I think we would go a much longer way than where we currently are. Because a lot of the time we make it as though it's 
like the men who are our in like our worst enemies. But I actually think that we ourselves sometimes are our own enemies, worst enemies. Um, and to begin to kind of have these conversations as women, especially as women who find you know ourselves in different spaces. How do we begin to open these communications or have these conversations, um, you know, where we realize that we have lots of things in common and we can actually help each other? It sounds like there needs to be a lot of shifting of narratives. So listening to what you're saying with these perspectives of the self-care dynamic, but yet it's being perceived as as selfish. Looking at the issue of greater self-awareness and in a way, busyness probably covers up focus on the self because you're so outward looking. And then the last aspect that you mentioned as a superpower of connectivity and community, because I think the reality is most people are going through the same thing. But if we drew together, we would be each other's support. 100%. 100%. And so if we continued in the, you know, it's about kind of breaking down the silos um, and connecting. I really think that's our superpower, but we we don't use it enough. Thanks for sharing your, your perspectives there and very important tips that are easy in theory and everyone should be able to achieve them. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Dr. Alicia Porter, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and the clinical head of the Child and Family Unit at Charlotte Makeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Porter, you wear a lot of caps, as I mentioned in the introduction and the little outro there clinical head of child and family unit at Charlotte Makeke, lecturing in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of the Witwatersrand. You're a coordinator of the Healthcare Workers Care Network. You're also secretary of the board of directors of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Can you tell us about some of your involvement in a few of the structures that we haven't spoken about yet today? Yes, well, I'm here at Charlotte Makeke. Um, That's my day job, my primary job. Um, And so I work in the child and family unit. And as such, we are a multidisciplinary unit where we work alongside um, psychologists and we have something that most places don't have. We have advanced child psychiatric nurses um, in our unit. And we, our aim is to manage children holistically. Um, And so we also provide like case management. And so we don't just see the child, we see the family. So that's why we call the child and family unit, because our belief is that you cannot just see a child if you do not, one, understand the family context, but if you also don't work with the family, you can't then work with the child. So we try to then have this multidisciplinary, more holistic approach to to our work with children. And interestingly, we run a predominantly outpatient clinic, which is very different to the kind of models of care where you have a lot of inpatient services, not too many outpatient services, but we believe that if we can provide a quality service, 
on an outpatient basis, we can keep children out of hospital. We sometimes need to admit, but that would be in circumstances beyond, you know, where they need acute or they've got some serious or severe mental illness. But even then, it's not for a long period of, of time. And so we really kind of thinking about different models of care for um, for children because we are finding ourselves at this point in time, I believe we're in the middle of a child and adolescent mental health pandemic. And that is evidenced by the suicide rate among adolescents. I mean, in the 15 to 29 year age group, it's the second leading cause of death. So we have a problem and we need to start looking for innovative solutions because we don't have enough resource. And for me, the innovation is not about we need more resource. How are we going to work even in spite of our resource um, constraints? And I mean, and that's not just in the public sector. It's across the board in terms of children and adolescents, you know, and so it's about how are we going to find these solutions? I always think The Avengers is one of my favorite movie. There was a scene where um, he says, you know, I'm in the middle of New York City. I've got these robots um, that are aiming at me with guns and I've got a bow and arrow. This is like insane. And that's what it feels like working with children and adolescents at the moment at the coalface. It really feels like a knife to a gunfight. So I really think that we need to begin to look for innovative ways But also, I think collaboration is going to be so important. We can no longer work in in silos because children are quite literally dying if I have to be dramatic. I I don't think you are being dramatic. You you said it's a leading cause within their age cohort, which is a tragedy. Well, the second leading cause of death only after road accidents. Dr. Porter, thanks for sharing aspects about uh, some of the work that you do and um, your approach to to doing things. Turning towards more of a personal perspective, a question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed towards their success. Sometimes people will talk about faith, a particular person, or qualities like perseverance um, within their value system. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? I think that I have perseverance on pretty much another level. Um, <laughs> and I think I've, I must say that um, I grew up with my parents were teachers and my mom was very sort of intentional about this idea that nothing is impossible. Um, And so if you wanted something, you had to go after it. Um, So I definitely think it's a part of my value. It's been a part of my value system. Um, You know, I can remember as a kid where, you know, we'd still wear sleep shirts and they would say different things on them. She'd always buy the ones that would say, you know, dreams come true, nothing's impossible. And she kind of always had this sort of idea that her gift to us was education. So myself, I've got two other siblings, like it didn't matter, you know, what was happening, like 
education was something that was front and foremost. Um, and that was the one thing I think that kind of set us up by the fact that she really placed a lot of value on on being educated and that would be the way that we would get kind of freedom um if we were if we were educated so i definitely think it's it was my value my value base and my village um because once my mom decided that that was sort of the way to go then the people in my village then rallied, you know, I can remember being a med student where like I lived in Durban at the time. And if I needed a textbook, a cousin of mine in Johannesburg would go and get a taxi to some arbitrary bookshop to get the book because I needed, you know, a book. And so they would then have it sent or the next person coming would then, you know, bring the book because that, you know, that was, that was the way. And so I definitely think it was my value system, my upbringing and, you know, my family. Um, we've always had a sort of a strong, just not just my nuclear family, but my extended family. And so you had all of these people rooting for you, even if they themselves were not educated, they saw the value with regards to, to education. And I know that you know, along the way, I've met, you know, different people along the way have kind of been there at different times, you know, to encourage and support and, you know, to get me there. And if at first you don't succeed, you just have to try, try and try again. Thanks for sharing the recipe on your success. And I love the family dynamic and the combination of both individual motivation, but then having this collective around you to keep driving the support forwards. And lastly, as we wrap up today's conversation, please use this platform to share a few words of wisdom or inspiration with women and girls who are listening to us. So I'm going to say, you know, I always think of myself as um, I've been marginalized because I'm a woman, but I think there's further marginalization by the fact that I'm a colored woman, which is a marginalization of a marginal, I'm a minority of a, of a, of a minority. And, you know, if I can do it, anybody, anybody can. Um, and so I really think that if I were to be talking to young girls now, I would say, you know, the people that you surround yourself, you are the sum total of who you surround yourself with. So I think we need to begin to be intentional about who we surround ourselves with. And if you surround yourselves with people who are, who share a common vision, who share the same belief system, you're going to go a lot further than if you have to fight to kind of get your belief even believed, <laughs> you know. So I really think that there is great, great value in who you choose to connect with and plug into. Because while there are individual factors, those do play a role. And especially, you know, within communities that we find ourselves. Um, and for me, I am now of the view that I'm going to celebrate who I am. 
I'm going to celebrate who I am. Um, I need, I know who I am. That's been a journey, but I'm going to celebrate that. And I'm going to encourage everybody else to celebrate, to celebrate that. And so where I am, my passion is to kind of look back and to look to those who are coming behind me and see how I'm going to give you a hand up um, because I want my floor, sorry, my ceiling to be the next generation's floor. It's about how we're going to build, but we can't build alone. What a great message. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you today and hearing new perspectives. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to chat. No, I could go on and on and on. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Alicia Porter, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and clinical head of the Child and Family Unit at the Charlotte Makeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital.